Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor. So I want to welcome everybody at home also. I don't know if you guys know this, but we are now broadcasting live on Facebook, which is incredible because over the next day or two, the last couple of weeks, each week gets seen by sometimes over 2,000 people, which is crazy to think about this little church. And it's amazing. And, um, you know, it gives us a chance to interact with, with people all over the country. Just this week, I got a chance to spend time with a guy named Mick out in Hampton, Iowa. I know his buddies are watching me at home right now saying hi to them, keeping me on my toes. But this is great that even if you miss church, you can actually watch online, so it's fun. So um, this series that we're in called The More You Know, the idea came from the fact that a lot of times in ministry, People come up to me and they say, hey, um, I've been a Christian my whole life, or maybe I'm brand new to Christianity, but I just, can you help me understand a little bit more about this particular aspect of the faith, or, or this particular issue? I'm a little bit confused. I'm not really sure that I know what I'm supposed to believe. Uh, and so this is the idea of, well, we're, let's give you more info, so the more you know. Because the truth is that at some point in your life, someone is going to ask you a question about your faith. Not just the faith, but what do you personally believe? And inevitably, it's, you know, they catch you off guard and you're not ready for it. So the question is, will you be prepared to answer them? Because I think you have a responsibility to, to know what you believe. And over the last couple of weeks, we've tried to hit on a couple of major topics that we really don't know a lot about or, or may get uh, a question about. So week one, we talked about the reliability of the Bible. Can you trust it? Is it true? Is it reliable? Week two, we talked about creation, Adam and Eve. What are we supposed to think about all that kind of a thing? And then last week, we spent time talking about Satan, which was an interesting topic for sure. And right after the 9 a.m. service, one of my friends who goes to that service went out to the parking lot, turned on their car, took a look at their odometer, and they saw that it said 66666. And they, they go, John, is this a problem? I go, that's oh, a big issue. Yes. This is not going to be a good day for you. Just a heads up on that kind of a thing. But um, so for today, the topic that I want to kind of land on and try to answer is this question, where do we find Jesus in the Old Testament? Now, you may hear this and you go, well, that, I never really thought about that. That's not really a, a question that I, that I had. But the truth is that Jesus claims that we talked about, that he claims that he was there at the beginning. He claims that he was part of creation. So the question is, if that's true, is he in the Old Testament? Or is he only active in the new? So I'm going to generalize here a bit. And this may not be you. I will admit this has been the way that I thought at times. Um, but I think for some of us, we look at the New Testament and we say, well, the New Testament, that's God, that's Jesus, and that's for Christians. The Old Testament, that's God, there's no Jesus. Primarily, it's for the Jews. And there's some good stories in there for Christians. I think if we're being honest, at some point in our lives, we've kind of used this. It's, okay, that's for the Jews, that's for the Christians, and there's really no mixing of the two. However, Jesus tells us that it's all about him. It's all one story. Beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. Now, not every sentence is about him, but everything, by and large, points to Jesus. So today we're going to be in Luke 24. And just to give you an idea of, of where this takes place, as we drop into this, this um, scripture today, just to give you an idea of where it's taking place so you have an understanding. Jesus has just been resurrected, okay? So it's, for intents and purposes, it's Easter Sunday, if you will, okay? It's Sunday. 
He's been resurrected. The tomb is empty, and there's mass confusion. Okay, back it up a little bit. Um, Judas betrayed him on Thursday night. Sometime Thursday evening, early Friday morning, was the trial. On Friday, as we call Good Friday, he was crucified. He died. They buried him. Friday night, he was in the grave. Saturday night, he was in the grave. Sunday morning, boom, resurrected. Now, we know, because the scriptures talk about it, that Sunday morning, some women went to go find him. He wasn't there. They grabbed some disciples. They went and checked it out. He wasn't there, and they're confused. What happened? Where did he go? That's where it takes on today. So we're in Luke 24, and, and this is later on Sunday afternoon. And behold, two of them, that's two disciples, were going, the very, uh, were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. Basically, they're talking about the betrayal, they're talking about the crucifixion, they're talking about the fact that he is not there anymore. It goes on. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what does this mean, their eyes were prevented from seeing him. Now, some scholars think that because Jesus' resurrected body looked different, maybe they, they didn't recognize him. And there's a lot of conversation about what was going on, and I think it could be many things. But I was taught long ago, and I think it's interesting, and I want to pass this on to you. One take is that defeat and sadness, which is what these men were experiencing, defeat and sadness can prevent us from seeing that Jesus has been with us every step of the way. The resurrected Jesus was walking alongside these men, and yet they didn't see it because they were so overcome by sadness, so overcome by defeat. And I think in our own lives, if we're being truly honest, when we get bad news, we lose the job when the doctor calls and the results are not what you wanted to hear. I think a lot of times we say, oh, woe is me. Where is Jesus? I thought he loved me. Why has he left me alone? And I think what we learn from this passage here is that he's been with you the whole time, but your, your situation has blinded you to that fact. So Jesus says to them, he goes on, he says to them, what are these words that you guys are exchanging with one another and, and while you're talking. He's basically saying, well, what are you guys talking about? And I, and I, love, I love this response. The one disciple goes, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. He's basically like, what are you, an idiot? I mean, you live under a rock? How do you not know what's going on? And so these two disciples just take a couple of minutes and they walk Jesus through the last couple of days. They talk about the betrayal. They talk about this. They talk about that. And at the end, the disciples say, you know what? We thought Jesus was the Messiah. We thought he was going to save us from Rome. But he died, and he's gone, and nothing seems to have changed. And it's in this moment that Jesus realizes that his followers still don't understand his mission. After all these years, after all the things that they've seen, all the things that he's done, these guys still don't get it. And I think in frustration, he kind of says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself 
in all the scriptures. Let me explain to you what's happening in here. This phrase, this Moses and with all the prophets, this would have been essentially Hebrew slang during the day. They would have used this instead of saying the Old Testament. Because for the first five books of the Old Testament, that was written by Moses. The rest of the books, those are prophetic in nature. So instead of saying the Old Testament, they would say Moses and the prophets. So in this walk, Jesus was going to educate them from the Old Testament and show them exactly where you can find him. This conversation, this conversation between Jesus and the two disciples, I believe was perhaps the greatest teaching Jesus ever did. I mean, imagine God himself walking these two men step by step through the entire Old Testament, showing them point by point where they could find him. I think it was perhaps the greatest teaching he ever did. And we have no record of it. Luke doesn't write it down. Matthew, Mark, John, no one captures this lesson. And I was thinking this week, well, what, what, why? And we don't know why. But my guess, I believe it wasn't captured because it challenges us to go searching for the truth. If I've learned anything from these last four weeks, I think it's the importance of us going back into the scriptures ourselves, going back and reading it for ourselves, learning it for ourselves. And I think that is what Jesus wants us to do. So we may not have the conversation, but we know what he was talking about. He was teaching those men about messianic prophecies. These are prophecies about the Messiah, Christ, okay? Now, there are over 300 messianic prophecies, and that was a seven-mile walk that would have taken him probably two hours. I don't think he had time to go over all 300, but I do think he had time to go over several big ones, and that's what we want to do today. But the question is, because you may not know, well, what is a prophecy? What's a prophecy? I think our working definition is that it's a message inspired by God given by the Holy Spirit to men relating to future events or truths. A lot of us just think of it as a prediction. That's fine. You can, you can think about that as well. So let me make uh, my own prediction, if you will. I think today, all right, I think you're going to hear prophecies today that are so accurate, you're going to be mesmerized. I've heard a lot of these because I grew up in the church, and as I was writing them down this week, there were times where I literally pushed my seat back from the computer, and I said, oh my gosh, these are wildly accurate, wildly accurate. I think they're so accurate that they're going to elicit a couple of questions from you guys. I think some of you are going to ask the question, well, did the prophets know what they were saying? Because it's almost like a script. They're so accurate, you're going to say, well, did they know what they were saying? So theologians kind of debate about whether the prophets really knew what they were saying or not, and most of them point to something that Peter says, one of the disciples. And essentially what Peter says is that when it comes to these prophets, he believed that they knew the generalities, but not necessarily the specifics. They understood that they were not talking to their own, their own man at that time. They were talking to future generations. They understood that they were talking about a coming Messiah, a coming Christ, but the specifics Maybe those escaped them. But the generalities, they knew. I think some of you may ask the question, well, have these prophecies been forged or written after the fact to align with the story of Jesus? Because they're so accurate at times, almost word for word, that I think someone, and I wouldn't fault you for asking this, would say, listen, 
One of the disciples had to have written this stuff down, okay? They put it in the Old Testament because they wanted to make Jesus look real. Someone had to have forged these. All I can tell you is this. Now, we didn't mention this during the first week when we talked about the reliability of the Bible. But when it comes to the Old Testament, when it comes to the manuscripts that we have, you need to understand that they've been scientifically tested. And carbon and 14C dating of the Old Testament manuscripts that we have show that they are aged anywhere between 150 years before the birth of Jesus to 408 years uh, before the birth of Jesus. The parchment, the ink, it's older than Jesus. It could have never been forged. Lastly, it was a question that was asked by one of my wife's fifth grade students last year, and I think it's actually a pretty good question. He said, couldn't Jesus just use the Old Testament like a playbook to fulfill prophecy? Meaning, couldn't he open up the Old Testament and say, all right, I got to do X and and Y and Z, and if I do these things, I will look like the Messiah? It's a fair question. There's two answers to this. At times, Jesus did exactly that, and he tells us. There are times in his life when he specifically fulfills prophecy prophecy, and he lets us know when he is doing that. However, as you'll see, there are prophecies of which he could have no control, namely his birth and his death and a couple of other ones we're going to hit. He could have not controlled those at all. So the goal for today is this, all right? I want to allow the risen Jesus, as he did on the road to Emmaus, I want to allow the risen Jesus to open our eyes to see him in the Old Testament. Because in Luke 24, okay, it says this, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That's my hope for today. Because what's interesting about this is that the converse of Jesus' statement is that Christians might be blind to the scriptures, okay? That like the disciples, we have some concept of how we think it should be, and we somehow miss out on the truth because of it. You see, those two disciples, they said yes to Jesus. They were followers of his, but they had this concept that he was going to set them free from the Romans. And because it didn't fall into that category, they got confused on the rest. And I think a lot of us have a concept of who Jesus is, what he should be doing, what he should be acting like. And if he doesn't fall into that box, we have a hard time seeing it. We're going to let Jesus fix that for us today. We're going to let him do the work and let him show us what he truly is, and how he has been around since the beginning of time. So the big question is, what, what, what did Jesus show these men on that seven-mile walk? What, 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 he, what would he have talked about? What did he show them? Now, as I said, we don't have this, okay? So what I wanted to do is, essentially, I wanted us to imagine what the conversation would be. Well, you know, we talked about messianic prophecies, but what, how would the conversation have taken place? Now, we certainly don't have time to do 300 prophecies. I think we'd all want to kill ourselves if we did all that. So what I did today for you guys is I've created a a workable timeline. All right, I've picked out the biggest prophecies that I think are the the most impressive, if you will, and I've created a timeline from Jesus' birth to his death so that when you leave here today, you can keep this timeline in your head. So I think the first thing that Jesus had to contend with is the fact that his followers couldn't seem to grasp the idea that he had to suffer and die. This was a problem for them. They, they, they couldn't understand this. They didn't get this. And we have this recorded in Matthew, one of the first instances. And it says this. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and that he must be killed, and on the third day, raised to life. Plain as day. Guys, I got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. They're going to kill me, which means I'm going to be dead. And then I'm going to come back to life three days later. You got it? And Peter goes, he took him aside. I love this. He takes him aside and began to rebuke him. He said, come here, come here, Jesus, okay? Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. You're never going to die. You're never going to suffer. I won't let that happen to you. And then Jesus famously says, get behind me, Satan. He calls his best buddy, he calls his disciple friend, Satan. Why? Because in that moment, to deny the suffering is to deny the cross. And for Jesus, that's Satan talking. We talked about that last week. Satan would love nothing more than to deny Jesus the opportunity to get on that cross. So I think that what Jesus does is they start off that journey down the Emmaus Road. The first thing he does is he takes them all the way back to creation. And he talks about what scholars call for thousands of years now the Proto-Evangelium. A little Latin there for your next cocktail party. The Proto-Evangelium, otherwise known as the first gospel. The first instance in the Bible where God says that he is going to send his son and he will defeat Satan. Now, this uh, conversation we're going to read takes place in the Garden of Eden. It takes place right after Adam and Eve took the fruit and they fell to sin. And this is now God speaking directly to Satan. It says this, and I, this is God, will put enmity, that's hostility, that's, that's tension, okay? I will put tension, if you will, between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. Then he says this, he, this is Jesus, Jesus will crush your head, and you, Satan, will strike his heel. In this one sentence, God does three things. The first thing he does is he lays the framework that Satan will be forever at war with Jesus and man. It's forever going to be like this. Number two, that the seed of Eve, that's Jesus, will crush and destroy the snake, that's Satan. And then lastly, in the process of redemption, Satan will strike the Messiah, causing great suffering. And this suffering is the events leading up to and including the cross. This is what was talked about in Genesis 3.15, thousands of years before Jesus even came to this earth. Now, as we continue down this uh, dialogue that we're going to create and imagine together, you have to remember that these disciples didn't recognize Jesus. They, they, they didn't recognize him. And I think Jesus might have used that to his advantage. And I can imagine him speaking in the third person. And as they walked down that dusty trail, I could see him saying, well, hey, boys, do you remember how Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Yeah, of course, we remember that. And then he says, well, then, of course you remember that 700 years ago, the great prophet Micah prophesied this and said, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are too little to be among the family groups of Judah, but from you one will come who will rule for me in Israel. His coming was planned long ago from the beginning. Jesus says, boys, you, you mean you saw this coming from the beginning of time. God said that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And I think he says next, he goes, well, 
do you remember how Jesus' mother was a virgin and she became pregnant by God? And I've got to imagine they say, well, yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a major part of his story. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. That's a major part. And that's never happened before. It hasn't happened since. That is a big deal. And I've got to imagine Jesus says, well, guys, I mean, you knew this was going to happen, right? Because 700 years before Jesus was even born, the great prophet Isaiah said this. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, that God would be with us. Now, if you're like me, and the first time I heard this, I said, well, it certainly sounds like Jesus. I mean, it's talking about a virgin being, having, conceiving. That, that's, that could only be Jesus. But the question that I had is that, well, why is his name Jesus and not Emmanuel? Because that's sort of what Isaiah says. You've got to look carefully. Because Isaiah actually says, we will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. He didn't say we're going to name him Emmanuel. His name is going to be Jesus, which means Yeshua. That's what he would have been called back then. But we actually call him many things. We do call him God with us. We call him the Almighty One, Alpha and Omega. We call him the Bread of Life, Good Shepherd, King of Kings, Lamb of God. These are all the things that we call Jesus, but his name is Jesus. And as Paul says, at the very name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, if you remember, this is all taking place on what we would call Easter Sunday. But I've got to imagine Jesus says, hey, boys, just a week ago. But do you remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king, riding on a donkey, and you placed palm branches before him and cheered? See, Jesus is describing what we call Palm Sunday. And I've got to imagine those two disciples are saying, yeah, that was an amazing day. I mean, what a day of victory. There were thousands of us, and we were cheering, and we were shouting because we saw our Messiah, our King, riding into the city on a donkey. It was an amazing day. And I think Jesus would say, well, I know you know this, but I'm just going to refresh your memory that 500 years ago, before this even happened, Zechariah prophesied, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, with this particular prophecy, this is a particular prophecy that Jesus specifically fulfilled. He asked for his disciples to go and find him a donkey, a colt. Get me that, because the prophecies say that I need to do this. So this is one of the ones. And he tells you, I need this for prophecy to be fulfilled. So that's one of the instances. I think at this point in this journey, who knows how long they've walked at this point, but I've got to imagine that Jesus' voice lowers, and he gets a little sadder. Because he says, you know, those shouts of joy were the beginning of the end for Jesus. That was the beginning of the end for him. Because he says, you know, it was three days ago. Four, depending on how you're counting. Do you remember when Jesus betrayed Jesus, when Judas betrayed Jesus? And I've just got to imagine they would say, yeah, we're stunned. 
We're shocked. We never saw it coming that Jesus' best friend, one of his followers, would betray him. We never saw it coming. Now, if you don't know this story, let me just break from the narrative real quick to clue you in. That Thursday night before Jesus was uh, crucified, it was what we call the Last Supper. He was having supper in the upper room. He was eating with all of his disciples, and, and he says this to them. Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you, talking to the 12, will betray me. One who is eating with me, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. Now, what's so fascinating is that 700 years before this took place, the great King David, who we talked about this summer, prophesied this. He said, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Now, Jesus, I mean, sorry, uh, Judas betrayed Jesus, okay? And, and we have this narrative, and it says this. Now, Judas, and he's talking to the chief priests. Judas asked them, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, that's Jesus, over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. They go, well, we think Jesus is worth about 30 pieces of silver. We'll pay you that if you can show us which one he is, we get him arrested, and we get him some charges on him. Can you do that for us? Not a problem. He takes the money. Immediate remorse on his part. When Judas, who betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and it actually says that he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. He didn't want it. He threw it back at them. I don't want this money. Now, they didn't want it back because they actually said, this is blood money, we don't want this, but they didn't exactly refuse it. What they did was they took it and they decided to use the money to buy, and pay attention to this, the potter's field. They used the 30 pieces of silver to buy the potter's field. Now, I think as they walk down this dusty trail and Jesus and the two are talking about this, he says, guys, I don't know how we didn't see this coming. Because 500 years ago, Zechariah prophesied about it, down to the specific details. And he said, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay. But if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. This is 500 years. They paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the potter's field. That 30 pieces of silver, it's the handsome price at which they valued me. So we're quick to forget that, that three days before this amazing conversation, just three days, was the crucifixion. I mean, Jesus' hands still have the wounds. And I want to take Jesus off the hook for a second because he's the one been telling the story. And I want to tell the story now. Because what I want to do as we end this message today is I want to walk you through the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And then at the end, I want to show you what is perhaps the two greatest prophecies in the entire Bible. So just so we remember, Judas has betrayed Jesus. He took the money, the guards came, 
that late Thursday evening, they arrested Jesus, they hauled him into a sham trial, and they brought him before Pilate. So Jesus was brought before Pilate, and he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. And Pilate was stunned. Pilate was saying, Jesus, do you understand what these men are saying about you? Do you understand the charges that they are bringing up against you? And Jesus stood there and kept quiet, silent. Why? Because Jesus knew that at that moment in his life, God had set into motion the proto-evangelium, the, the, the redemption that he had promised from the beginning, now it's happening. Jesus says all the events have taken place, and now I must die. And he kept silent. And Jesus was mocked, and he was spat on, and he was whipped and beaten, and the flesh was torn from his body. Soldiers stripped him naked, and divided up his clothes by casting lots. When they crucified him, they drove nails through his hands and his feet, and they hung him on that cross. And scholars and scientists will tell you that dying on a cross is perhaps the most painful way to die. That you literally choke to death under the weight of your own body. And as he was up there, the crowds taunted him, saying, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. Let God take him off that cross. He'll take care of him. And after several hours of agony on that cross, Jesus cried out famously, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he died. He died on that cross. And the two men on that road to Emmaus, were crushed by the death of Jesus. They were crushed. They didn't understand it. All they were taught, all they saw, they didn't get it. Because for a Jew, a dead Messiah was no Messiah. They, were, they just didn't understand. Why? Because their eyes were closed to the Scriptures. Their eyes were closed to what was found in the scriptures. They didn't get it. They didn't see it. They were blind to the fact, although it was there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, as we wrap up, and I show you these last two prophecies, what you need to understand, what's so important and makes this so interesting, is that 600 years before crucifixion had even been invented, the act of crucifixion had not been invented for another 600 years when God told the world about the Messiah's final days. Now, King David, the great prophet, 700 years before Jesus died, said these words, prophesying a great event. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Goes on. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. 
They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Astounding. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus' death, takes over. And I think, folks, I think he's talking right to us. He says this, we turned our backs on him, and he looked the other way. Yet, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. It continues. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. He had done no wrong. I mean, you read these words, and you think, this is like a script of Jesus' last 24 hours, and you're telling me that this was written 700 years before he was even born? It's incredible. God, through all time, has been dropping breadcrumbs and creating patterns, pointing to Jesus so that when he was finally here, we wouldn't miss it. Paul, I think, encapsulates this the best, and he says, for God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Now, what was proven on that road to Emmaus, on that dusty seven-mile walk, is that death could not hold Jesus, and he rose from the grave. And what's so amazing about the resurrection is that 700 years before the resurrection took place, the great King David prophesied these words. For you, God, will not give me over to the grave, and you will not allow your Holy One to return to dust. That's Jesus. And at the end of this teaching, at the end of the seven-mile walk, when Jesus had finally showed them from Moses and the prophets where he was, those two men, well, they finally recognized Jesus, it said. They finally saw Jesus. And the scripture says that the men's heart burned within them as Jesus taught. It burned as he taught. I don't know about you, but as I was reading these words, my heart did too. My heart did too. The reason your heart may be burning, the reason these disciples' hearts were burning, is the fact that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. And it's undeniable. And it's profound that for thousands of years, God has been preparing the way for his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's the practical? If it's your first time here at DHC, every week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what you do with what you've heard. So what do you do with a message like this? The prophecies of Jesus. Well, I think the reason that Jesus originally taught this type of lesson to those two men 
was that those two guys would be encouraged. They were sad, and they were defeated. But my hope today is that if you are a Christian in the room, if you are someone who said yes to Jesus, you would be encouraged by this, that your God, your Jesus, has been spoken about since the beginning of time, and it is undeniable, and frankly, it's profound. If you're someone who hasn't said yes to Jesus in this room, and that's fine, I would just challenge you to be open. Be open to the fact that these words that were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, that were scientifically tested to not be fraudulent, maybe, just maybe, Jesus might be the person he claims to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, the man who died for your sins, that should you say yes to him, you will be made right with God. Lastly, I would challenge you to dig deeper. The whole point of this series is to answer some questions that may, we may have. But if you're not doing your own homework, if you're not getting into the Bible yourself and digging deeper, you're really not going to learn as much as you think you can. I would challenge you to go back, even today with these prophecies. Go back and learn them yourselves. Go back and read them yourselves. Dig deeper. Learn. Grow your faith. You'll be glad you did. Because when you open up the words for yourself, what you're going to see, as Jesus talked about so many years ago, is that from cover to cover, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelations, it points to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Let me pray for us. Dear God, I want to thank you that from the very beginning, you had us in mind. That from the very beginning, Lord, you had set a plan into motion that you would redeem us from our own sins. I thank you, Lord, that every step of the way, you were dropping breadcrumbs and hints and prophecies that we could see that would prepare our hearts for your son, Jesus. Lord, we know, because your son talks about it, that it is possible for us to miss these truths. I pray that today your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, would open our eyes that we may see the full revelation of who Jesus is from beginning to end, that he is your son, that he is God, that he came to this earth to die for our sin, Lord. And I pray that for anybody in the room who hasn't said yes to Jesus yet, that is still questioning whether or not he is who he claims to be, I pray that today that these prophecies would be helpful. That perhaps today, Lord, this might nudge them into the territory of saying, okay, I'm going to give Jesus a chance. I'm going to give him a chance to come into my life and change my life. I pray that today that would be, that would be an occurrence for someone in this room. But Lord, for the Christians in the room who have said yes to you, but there are things going on in their lives right now, things that they don't understand, reasons for them feeling defeated, reasons for them to say, oh, woe is me, reasons for them to question where you are in the midst of the storm. I pray that today, Lord, you would open their eyes to recognize that you have been with them the whole time. And I pray that no matter what someone is going through right now, that you would meet them at the place of their need, 
that they could feel you in a special way to know that you love them, that you care about them, and that you want the best for their life. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.